It's a new year and a new super accelerated schedule. I can't believe I actually convinced Ed to do this, but it's it now my episode. Idea. Was it? I forget. I it anyway, thanks idea. for interrupting. Yeah, episode no 71 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, welcome, boys and girls, cats of all ages. It's that time again where Ed and I argue and discuss things related to technology, and we leave all the best stuff for the pre-show and after-show when the rest of you never get to hear it. So, uh, yeah, second show of 2016. Um, and once again, I didn't speak to Ed until we started. But the, the difference is this time we actually have two very special guests, and we will get to that in a minute. Um, uh, there is a new section to be that I'm starting called Corrections and Updates because I know some people have had the nerve to tell us uh, mm-hmm. via various social media uh, channels. And in this chat beforehand, before Ed got here, I was corrected about something from one of our guests. So we'll do that after the sponsors. So, uh, so Ed, why don't you start off with uh, talking about our awesome sponsors? Well, I'm going to talk first about our R lettered sponsor. But then we have a representative from the W lettered sponsor who is going to uh, make, a, I think, a PowerPoint presentation for us. So we'll get into that. Um, first off, we've got Rove. Um, I am not sure they actually do anything with computers anymore. I think, uh, I, it's my understanding that after, you know, I, we've talked about the, uh, the dog incidents, the, uh, uh, employees overseas who, uh, had to be shipped off to deny culpability. Um, and now, uh, my understanding is my understanding is that uh, they've created some sort of Rube Goldberg device out of a, a series of pulleys and um, other simple machines. Um, and I think the idea is that it will bake cinnamon bread, and that is what they're doing now. Um, so, if you are interested in ordering a loaf of cinnamon bread, uh, which may or may not come with a test sink suite, uh, you should visit rove.com. That's R-O-A-V-E.com. It's also made with some of the finest desert wheat that you can find from Arizona. The desert wheat. Did you see that thing? I, I think this might have been a rove thing where those high school kids got in trouble for doing something that even Arizona thought was too racist. What could that possibly be? Well, apparently some kids were wearing shirts. Again, we can't confirm or deny that they were provided by Rove. Uh, And uh, they were black with big gold letters on them. Like each shirt had a letter. And each child was assigned a letter to, and they stood around and formed some sort of uh, saying like class of 2016, we're the awesomest or something like that. And it had a couple of asterisks in it. Like it, like the words were separated by asterisks because you didn't want to just have a space without a person, I guess. And you didn't want to like shove it all together, like a hashtag, you know, when people type like 26 letter hashtags and they don't capitalize anything. So it's not camel cased. Um, well, uh, I guess some people decided that, what we'll do is we will make the N-word, except with a couple asterisks in it, and then post that on Snapchat. Yeah, that seems like a pretty strong play for Arizona. Yeah, so 
Again, we don't know if Rogue was involved with that. <laughs> They're going to cancel the sponsorship. It's okay. We already spent their money. It doesn't matter. And um, that is, uh, that's what we know right now. Uh, it's there. So there's another issue, but I think we take the go with the bad. Their traditional baking facilities that they have provides a, a, a homey old world culture uh, that comes out in the flavor and the uh, cinnamon spice. So I believe they'll be show, uh, selling us only at select restaurants too, uh, like Cracker Barrel and Chick-fil-A. Oh, I love Cracker Barrel. Every time I'm in the U.S., mm-hmm. I always stop and eat mm-hmm. at Cracker Barrel. I mm-hmm. love that place. Yeah. So that's sponsor number one. So are we actually are we actually going to let this might be a first a sponsor actually giving their own reading their own ad on the air? It's like a yeah. it's like a new thing. I don't know. It's a terrible precedent to set. We may have to get someone from Rove on to read the ad next time. Well, let's see how this goes first. This might be a terrible so, mistake. It's it's a huge mistake. So. Wonder Network has really been looking for a lot of opportunity uh, in, in the business world, and we've decided to leverage our synergy with cross-dimensional, uh, fully integrated silos on network installation products. Everything is cyclical. They've been looking at wireless technology for many years. I can't do this if I can see people's faces. They've been looking at wireless technology for many years, and we're going to cycle right back around to wired technology. Ooh. Ethernet, that is, that is gone. We are installing only the best top-tier token ring networks this side of 1992. You know, when I hear this, Paul, all I can think is Gemma's going to be doing a lot of overtime. Oh, no, yep. no. No, I'm not hardware. <laughs> this will be this will be Will. Let's see who this will be. Oh, well, I guess Will. I guess Will and Trigger are going to be doing a lot of re-racking the servers uh, in the coming months. What we're really bringing to the market is our seasonal tokens, not so the same tokens of your, of your grandfather's network with your terminated RJ forty five connections. No, no, we have handcrafted token ring tokens Bespoke ready tokens. for distribution. Disposed. Within your own local network, your municipal area network, your wide area network, we can handle all of those things. That's what we're bringing to the table in 2016. Yeah, I, I think the ad reads have finally jumped the shark. That's I think we've we've done it, Ed. We've turned it around and made it completely absurd. What just now? It's completely absurd. Yeah, I think this just this. <laughs> it was pretty serious. Before. Artisanal RJ45 token ring. That's bespoke tokens. That's, <laughs> The, for the ad section, this is just a mic drop now. <laughs> so after I finished high school, I, uh, I had a job where I was running around installing network cards in people's computers mm-hmm. for cable internet. Because you didn't go to college. Right. Go ahead. Um, we, could, we could circle back to that if you want. Okay. Uh, but the, 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 the Ethernet cards I had had like, or had like an Ethernet jack and like an RJ45 jack in the back. That's and so I started taking like the little RJ45T connector out of the box because no one's ever going to use them. And I built like this huge, like two foot across, um, like metal thing out of all of these T connectors plugged into each other. It was a lot of fun. That's awesome. I think the that, arena's over. 
Is that like a board? Hey, 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 hey. Whose podcast is it? The sponsors don't mm-hmm. run it, especially the non-paying sponsors. All right. So let's move on. They pay the with the sweat equity. Sweat equity. Sweat equity. All right. So before we go on, we have a new uh, section known as known as Chris is wrong and we'll say why. Okay. So mm-hmm. uh, to because yeah. almost it's always me being corrected because Ed Ed is careful not to say things that are wrong. I and I end up <laughs> in, in a, being the one that says all the wrong things because I just I don't care and I don't search and I don't research. You throw so yourself on things, that grenade for so me. So two things were brought to my attention. The first thing was that uh, my impression of the French legal system uh, from last week apparently is incorrect. They do not they don't have uh, guilty until proven innocent, but I was told that they don't do the uh, the American favorite of the perp walk. I do know that the guilty before proven innocent, and of course I'll probably be doing a correction about this next week, is uh, part of the Napoleonic uh, legal code where you're you're assumed to have done something and you have to prove that you didn't do it. It's kind of like being a parent where you tell your kid, well, prove to me that you didn't do it. So that's correction number one. Correction number two was uh, brought to by an individual who I don't want to mention their name because it will tarnish the brand forever, mm-hmm. informed us that the name was wrong. Uh, the actor who portrayed the creature in the movie... Uh, the thing. I don't think it's called the thing. I think it's called something else. But from nineteen fifty, like the thing from that, another world or something. Like is that, that. was it called the thing? Yeah, from another world? well, something like that. Anyway, something like that. Uh, yes, it was not uh, uh, Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke. It's James Arness. So, uh, so with those corrections out of the way, we can talk about our two awesome guests. As you have guessed, they are both uh, key contributors to Wonders Networks. Um, and the reason when Ed and I were talking about uh, wanting to have a guest on this time, I thought, who can we bring on who is both entertaining and uh, you know can talk about talk about um, the struggles of running a business on, on the side? So I thought Gemma would be that. <laughs> and then uh, of course it's Paul that we need to the wonder boss to have on. So we thought we'd have them on and talk about uh, you know challenges of working for Paul and also the challenges of running a business on the side when you uh, have a full time job. So. Uh, so, Paul and Gemma, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, even though people should know who you are, and if they don't, they should be ashamed of themselves. Tell one of them to go first, Chris. All right, Gemma, you go first, since you're the one I wanted on first. That's appropriate. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, I'm I'm Gemma. I used to be a classical violinist, and now I'm a software engineer. Um, and I work for Wonder Proxy. I'm the Wonder Minion. I do backend software development in PHP and Go. Um, and yeah, that's that's me. And people can't see this, but she has an awesome new haircut. Here Thank you very much. I also like my haircut myself. Appreciate that. So later on, when you're you know you're wondering about what happened to the haircut, you just go back and listen to this episode and get a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about the time when you had a really awesome haircut. <laughs> yeah. I uh, recently saw Gemma at Ski PHP, which we may or may not talk about later. And when she had those space tights on, I thought she struck a cool uh, 1970s David Bowie vibe. Like, uh, oh my gosh, I wasn't even going for that, and you're totally right. With the thank you, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> um, shit, why can't I think of his name? The not Spiders from Mars. Oh, Ziggy Stardust. He had kind of a Ziggy Stardust vibe, and I really liked that. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm glad you that that was a positive thing. I've meant it to be, but of course. I absolutely. I love that those space leggings are like my favorite piece of clothing right now. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway. All right. Now, now Paul can talk about who he is and why he's here. So this is Paul. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. 
so I am one of the co-founders of Wonder Proxy, uh, Gemma's employer. I like to say friend employer, um, which wasn't really a phrase, I think, until I started using it. That's sort of how I like to approach the issue. That works uh, about as well as principal. Yeah, when I'm, when I'm not doing that, I'm also a full-time employee of Stripe, um, and all opinions here are my own. Stripe has a much larger legal department than Wonderprocity does. Yeah, so <laughs> Larry Allman's the only one likely to listen to this anyway, so I wouldn't worry yeah, about that's it. That's a fair point. Larry's a great guy. I love Larry. I love Larry. I do. I, I'm also a fan of Larry. He's working on the next edition of his book. Uh, Which book? Yeah, what's the, the, uh, the, uh, the framework, that one? No, the Visual Quick Start Guide for PHPs. Oh, that's cool. A visual that. quick start guide. What for- makes it visual? Pictures. Like I know it's no. a series, but what like? I think it uses th- like pictures. So I'm actually also the tech editor, but I don't have a good answer for that question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, moving on then. Good job, Thanks. buddy. So, uh, so Paul, tell us the uh, tell us the story of how uh, Wonders Networks and Wonder Proxy and. Where's it at? And uh, wonderful stories about servers being smuggled into Peru via diplomatic bag. Tell us, uh, tell us how uh, Wonder Wonder Network got going. How it all started. Sure. I mean, so I, mean I know a little bit about it, but yeah. I'm sure the audience it, has no idea. I don't want to. I don't want to bore everyone, but I'll try to give you a, a quick version. So a number of years ago, I worked for a company that was making um, graphically intensive content management systems targeted at the adult market. <laughs> Um, and I had a coworker there. Uh, his name was Nick. He was a good guy and occasionally gave me a ride home from work. But Nick had a problem. It was his job to make sure the website was working correctly for people around the world. Uh, like if you were in the right country, you were getting billed in the right currency, using the right credit card provider, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, but sometimes Nick couldn't give me a ride home because he had to stay late at work because uh, he had no really good way of testing this. Uh, I chatted up this problem with a couple of other people. We hashed around the idea of, you know, if you just bought a VPS server in like, you know, London and Russia and Spain and Australia and cover a couple different areas, Put install a proxy software on them, then everything would be great. So I did that, bought a bunch of those, set them up, uh, and they were the first customer within a month or two. And so we've grown from that like initial eight servers to just over 200 servers around the world right now on every continent except Antarctica, uh, as was discussed in an earlier episode, I believe. Uh, and since we've got all these servers around the world, we try to make use of them any way we can. So we launched Where's It Up, which has a, a nice API to let you like ping servers and do HTTP GET requests and DNS trace routes and all kinds of other fun stuff. Um, about a year or two ago, we had enough money to hire somebody full-time. And I was thinking, you know, this, this would be pretty cool. I could quit my job and just work on Wonder Proxy full-time. And I thought about it a little bit more, and I realized just how lazy I would be. Like, for zero additional effort on my part, I could get a full-time salary, and I could just view, my, view myself as, like, the bad guy in that South Park episode with World of Warcraft, <laughs> where, like, I would just sit around all day playing video games, you know, just with headset on. I'd probably have to be in, like, three guilds, because, like, just one of them wouldn't be intense enough for me. Like, just nothing with video games all the time. And I wouldn't learn anything new. I, would, I mean, except stuff about video games. I wouldn't get any better at anything I was doing. Uh, so instead, I decided to hire somebody whose programming skill I respected, who I felt could um, help carry our code in a good direction and in a nice, reliable direction. Um, and at the same time, go out and get a job somewhere where I could continue learning new things and get paid for doing that. 
Uh, and so that was the decision I made in the direction we took. And, and thus, Gemma became the first Wonder Minion. I'm hurt you never called me, Paul. Didn't even Sorry. bother. You were probably on your book tour, man. <laughs> My book tour. I said, I'm hurt, Paul. You never thought of me, but, you know, that's, that's how it goes. Gemma's probably more reliable and less likely to yell at you and stuff like that. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I probably would have said, where are the tests? And I would have quit after, like, day number two. You know, common.php has some has some good fu- some good functions in it. <laughs> it's got yeah. There's functions in there that I <clears throat> don't even I don't even touch them. I just look at them and I'm like, yep, and I don't I just keep going. What what's worse, calling a file common.php or just calling it functions.php? In our case, common.php is actually more accurate because it's not just functions. Could also be setting up the state, the environment. Yes. Could be. There's an object or two in there. Finding some classes. Configuration variables. Is it any worse? You could just rename it bootstrap.php and it's probably just as accurate. Yeah. There's always a third path. It's true. A third path. That's all the time we have. Like I'm like this blank air brought to you by I'm trying not to take over your podcast. So. <laughs> Come on, Ed, stand up to this guy. What are you doing? Uh, I was uh, retweeting important stuff on the internet. Uh, also, I was thinking about I've collected. Oh my like, gosh, you were <laughs> like twelve suits of power armor uh, now in Fallout, and uh, that's pretty cool. And the only reason Ed's not playing a video game right now is because he's actually on camera. Because I know, I know for a fact he plays games while we're podcasting. Well, you can't see. Oh, where that my would hand, be so fun. Can't see where my hands are. I could be doing it. Man, this was a tactical error. I could have been playing Destiny right now. I know, right? See? I love I'm the only one that takes it seriously and turns off Twitter and all that other stuff while I record. Thanks, Ed. I did actually turn it off, but uh, I was missing good stuff. Uh, good dropping, good science. Somebody, a friend of mine is dropping some true mathematic about codes of conduct, and I appreciate that. So, sorry, brothers and sisters. I got to drop it. Peace out. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to get into code of conduct because we already talked about enough of that. No, no. It did not help. Not to, no, no, no. We weren't trying to help. We just, I think we just needed to state our positions. And it's like, all right, well, just don't want to talk about it. It's, it's a so, thing you do once and you don't do again. It's, 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 just, it's fine. Uh, so before we get into other stuff, also, I spent uh, last Friday uh, packing up elephants. The woolly mammoth elephants finally showed up. So, Oh, the fried um, chicken. Yes, the fried chicken. I was packing that into, into bags to be shipped out to people. So I have a box of 50 uh, elephants at my house that are haven't been assigned to anybody. So uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to sell them for like 100 bucks a pop. Every time people ask me if they want one, I'll just say it's 100 bucks shipped anywhere. Send it to me via PayPal and I'll send you one. So, um, I, but I, I have you should get that money via Stripe. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah, whatever. PayPal. Um, I've been using it for years. I have, I, I have a, I have a super duper grandfathered account, so I never have any any problems with people holding on to my money. But I do. You can't see it on camera because it's way in the corner next to my hipster record player. I have this is also basically radio. Yeah. It is. <laughs> uh, I have uh, I have one of the humongous large elephants uh, watching over my record collection. So why don't I have one of those? Did you uh, Did you uh, sign up for an elephant on the Kickstarter, Ed? Yes. Did you? All right. Mm-hmm. I'm just a shame I'm not going to get to pack all of them because I wanted to like uh, like deface some of the elephants for certain individuals who I knew were getting some. 
by writing all on them in uh, like Sharpie. Maybe you're going to pack it before you pack it. You know what I mean? (laughs) I don't know what that means. All right. So, uh, no, I lost my train of thought. No, that's actually, that's kind of interesting, Paul, that you, like you looked at it and you said, you know, I could just sit here and uh, play video games all day long and just do whatever it takes just to keep, you know, and then, uh, you know, then occasionally divert my attention away from my triple guild uh, multi-boxing uh, runs to uh, to just fix something because I'm getting a 404 or, or an angry customer called me for the 10th time, so I should finally do something about it. That's kind of interesting because um, uh, I've often tried to figure out a way to set up uh, where my side stuff becomes the main stuff. And uh, I often wonder if the... Similar thoughts have crossed my mind where all that freedom uh, without the, not pressure, but the steady the, the, the steady pace of stuff that needs to get done. I think if, uh, if I was just doing my own stuff, I would eventually slack off and would be doing similar types of things, just screwing around. And then like one day a week, all right, I guess I better finally do some of this important stuff and, and get all those things done. So it's kind of interesting. Are you guys trying That's, to talk I mean, yourselves out of working for somebody else? No, I just... no. I mean, I talked myself into working for someone else. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm really impressed that that Chris wrote his own book. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I don't because you self published, right, Chris? Yes, sir. If if Deborah Williams Colley had not been yelling at me, my book never would have been done. Mm-hmm. Like without that editor, and, and she was fantastic. Uh, without her, my book never would have gotten done. Right. Um, coincidentally, the year I wrote my book is also the year WoW came out. So <laughs> I've, I've already had problems there. Uh-huh. Like. And so I, I know that I need other people involved and just working on something on my own for a long period of time isn't really the, the best way for me to get things done. And, and so I, I really tend to be, if I'm working on something, I want to get something out as soon as I can. I don't want to work on something for months and, and perfect it. I want to like, you know, work on it this weekend and ship it on Monday and just get it at the door. And then if something breaks, and it will, because I wrote it in two days, um, like I can fix that. But then I've at least done the thing and it's out there. And then the fact that something's broken pushes me to continue working on it and make it better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I didn't have much of a problem uh, summoning the uh, the specific amount of like discipline to write a book. I didn't find that very difficult. Um, mainly because, like, when I decided I want to start doing these sort of things, I realized that the the key to doing these things was going to be not so much knowing tons about the topic that kind of goes with it when you do all the research, but about time management and, and just saying, okay, you know, start planning things, and and that bled over into getting my uh, entire life better organized. Where I'm very much calendar driven. I set aside time to do everything. My calendar is like I put in when I'm doing the podcast. I put in when I'm going to work on the book. I put in sometimes even when things got really hectic. I started putting in. Time we're like, yeah, I'm going to watch TV from you know from nine nine until I pass out whenever at like midnight. So um, yeah, I mean, I never had a problem because I'm working on book number four right now. So for me, it was never a big problem because it's like it was time driven. I w- I had some built in deadlines. Uh, I always start in the fall. I always wanted to get my books done um, by the time my birthday rolls around in March. So there are some I put some calendar constraints in, and then I just. I just, I just work on it until it's done, and I'm kind of like you, Paul. I don't, I, I don't like to take the thing and try to make it perfect. It's like I, I get it out there, I reread it a bunch of times, see if it makes sense, and then out it goes. And and that sort of approach to writing books has has worked out quite well for me. So, um, 
But yeah, I mean, a, a part of it too is also learning to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. And clearly, Paul, you've realized without without some pressure and, and a drive to con- like a continual, almost like a conveyor belt of things for you to do. Um, you know, there are some people that that thrive under that, and there are some people who are like they just don't want to do that. I mean, you know, uh, Ed jokes about trying not to work for people. It's like what I really want to do is is always be working on things um, that I find interesting. So uh, you know, I, I'm. I often wonder if if my only job was writing books and creating um, videos and doing training, how long it would be until I would be like, maybe I should start doing something else a couple days a week. And then before I know it, I'm back to the scenario where I am now, where it's four days a week um, working for somebody else and then one day a week working on my own stuff. That balance has worked out, I, I think, really well for me since I switched to that plan. I mean, would you ever consider something like that, Paul? Like going back a bit on the on the like working for stripe not to not to say that you know you should spring this on them but the idea of like you know one day a week for wonder networks proxies wears it up all that stuff and then one day and then the other four days you're doing on uh, you know you're working on the stuff for stripe because i mean i did talk to stripe and uh, after talking to them about it just kind of felt like at the time the position that they would have me doing wasn't necessarily something i was interested in i mean it may have changed now but i mean it's yeah have, have you ever thought about that I thought about it a lot a couple jobs ago, um, where I was working for an employer that had uh, like flexible, like you could do four days a week, you could do like four nine-hour days or whatever, and have Fridays off, and like they had a, like all of that work-life balance, flexible schedule stuff. And I was thinking about it, like maybe I'll drop down to eighty or sixty percent time, do some stuff there. Um, but I think another aspect of that was the work wasn't super engaging. And so I had the at the mental capacity capacity at the end of the day, at the end of the week, to spend time on Wonder Proxy. Um, but the stuff I'm doing with Stripe right now is is interesting enough to me that I don't really, I, I don't know that that would be a good a good schedule for me, like doing four days a week and then just sort of leaving the rest of my team working on the same stuff that other day. Uh, so I don't know if it would work super well for me, and I, I'm not sure if it would fly for them. But though I haven't tried at all. Um, I think it'll probably be an all or nothing split down the road at some point. All or nothing. What do you do? You think though that this opportunity to uh, do you think that it let you be more picky about what you decide to do and the environments you tend to go, you would be able to go into, or you felt like you wanted to go into, like you were a little less like, oh, I really need to find a job, as opposed to, hey, I want to find a job that is satisfying and, uh, you know, pushes me, but I don't so I, need it. I have, I haven't had a long stretch of unemployment. Um, a couple jobs ago, I told them I was quitting as soon as I found another job and then worked there for like another month while I found a job, <laughs> uh, well, which was apparently a technique that worked out for me. Um, and then I got hired away from FreshBooks to go work at Stripe. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there, there wasn't like a period where I was just unemployed and, and had that opportunity. I feel like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm sort of mountain climbing that way. I've always got my hand on one before I, I move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the same way. I've never just out and out rage quit um, a job without something else lined up. Mainly because my wife insists that I do things that way. Otherwise, who knows? I may have had some several long stretches of unemployment just out of sheer stubbornness. Out of curiosity. <laughs> Are you leaving? 
No, I'm just moving in my... Yeah, I'm going to go all Tell the way back. Sounds like you're leaving. No, I'm not leaving. Oh, all right, then. If you say I so. Just, I just fidget all the time, so I'm always moving if in my chair. A fidget, Sorry. Um, I know my, I know, I know the office manager doesn't like to sit in my lap because I, I fidget too much and mm-hmm. he gets comfortable and then, then he has to leave because he doesn't like me constantly moving around. Yeah, why don't you chill the shit out, dude? I can't. I'm not wired that way. I'm just so. twitchy. So, uh, how's all that worked out for you there, Paul? I think it's worked out pretty well. Um, the folks at Stripe are super nice. Mm-hmm. I have to learn Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, which Sorry. has been a little bit of ups and downs. Like for a while, I'm like, wow, this stuff's awesome. And mm-hmm. then, you know, somebody's like, hey, you should look into like what monkey patching is. I'm mm-hmm. like, why did you do this? This was a horrible idea. Yes. What 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 happens here changes depending on which order the files were called. What is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and then other stuff is cool. So it really flips around. It's fun. It's been fun working for a company that's put a lot of effort into its developer tool infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've never had all of the cool magic. Like if you wanted to pull this into production, which is a complicated process involving many servers, here's one command that will even do like a nine cat for you across your screen while it's running. That just makes all that stuff happen, and you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's fun. And and I like working for companies whose business model I understand. Yes, that's helpful. <laughs> you know, like. You know, you process credit cards, and there's a little bit of money left over at the end. That what? that makes sense to me. What are you talking about? Um, you know, FreshBooks build people for software that they used. That made sense to me. Mm-hmm. When you know, you go work for a company, it's like, yeah, we're just gonna get 50 million people to sign up to listen to music, and then eventually <laughs> we'll figure out how to make money on that. Well, you know, is that is that gonna work out for you? Is that a thing? Maybe maybe I'll not do that. No, I don't try to think too much about how Mozilla makes their money because uh, too many uncomfortable questions, I think. You want me to tell you how they make their money? <laughs> no, I do know how. They- <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just making a joke because um, my wife asked me a bunch of times, how do they make money? I'm like, you don't want to know. Volume. You know, I, I said, all, all you need to know is that money shows up in my bank account every two weeks. That's all you need to know. How it gets there, I'm not interested. <laughs> and every two weeks, paychecks are great because then like two months a year, you get three paychecks. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Man, you're smart. Yeah, it's been a long, long time since I worked someplace where I got paid every two weeks. Uh, for the longest time, I worked at places that paid um, once a month, mm-hmm. and then some places that would pay on the fifteenth and then the last business day mm-hmm. of the month. But so it's weird getting uh, paid, uh, getting paid uh, uh, every two weeks. I remember a long time ago when I worked part time at a grocery store, we got paid every week, which was again kind of weird. Nice. What? Did you have to join I, a union? <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get into that talk. Because uh, like, I, I like unions. Yes, you, you had to be part of a union. That's the simple. I, worked, I, I worked for a bed and breakfast once that just didn't, never paid me. <laughs> 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 I, I did like, I don't know, 20, 20 or 30 hours over a summer. Like a hundred. They just never paid me for it. <laughs> it's what? like, well, I'm moving, you know, whatever. It's fine. So what made you decide to leave the easy, uh, breezy cocoon of being a classical violinist and get into into, uh, programming? Slum it with us. (laughs) Programming is so much easier than being a violinist. Are you kidding? Oh, my goodness. Maybe. So much easier. Uh, uh, 
I mean, being a violinist is super rewarding and wonderful and you get to make music and it's great. And playing, there's a rush playing with other people doing chamber music, playing in string quartets and, and trios and uh, with the, even just with a piano, mm-hmm. with an orchestra. There, that, that doesn't really exist for me anywhere else. Like I have to be doing that to get that rush. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, programming is way easier. <laughs> 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 Classical violin. I mean, it, you gotta, if you, if you want the, the good jobs as a classical violinist, so you're, you're going for like a high power orchestra job. Mm-hmm. You're practicing six to eight hours every day in the practice room in, in college. You have to get a master's degree in performance. There's really, I mean, unless you're, you know, a wunderkind, which I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's six to one in Pickums, you even get an interview or an audition. Like it, it's, it, it is so competitive as a violinist. It is just colossally competitive. Um, and I found that when I graduated from my undergraduate degree in, in music performance, um, I got married and discovered that I could actually make money right then in tech. Mm. Right then I could start, I could start making money right then. And, um, you know, my husband was still working on a degree. He's in fact still working on a degree. Uh, so making money was a happy thing for for us at that point. Sounds um, like so I just kind of shifted. Sounds like uh, that whole thing needs disrupting. I think that's yeah. untapped. Uh, classical untapped, music. Uh, potential we market. Can, yeah, classical can. violinist uh, market <laughs> needs, needs disrupting. It was already disrupted. Apps. That was the, um, all the electronic music. That was the disruption. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Synthesizers always screwing the mind. Yeah. Technology yeah. comes in and uh, oh. I'm sure they tried to regulate against it. I can't wait to try. See, see now, see, see, Gemma, now you've provided me with a good story for my kids. I can tell them, look, I know a person that was a classically trained violinist, and she said that programming was way easier than that. It is so, way why, so why don't you come work for your father on Grumpy Learning? So that's probably what I'm going to do. <laughs> I mean, to be clear, like, I was using computers, like Unix boxes, when I was, you know, seven. So, hashtag humble brag. No, I mean, this was in my house. Like, my, my dad brought this into my house, so this is what I grew up with. It was just normal. And no, no, I'm, I'm air-quoting normal. <sighs> yes, yeah. yes, air-quoting normal. We also played TIE Fighter with a trackball because we didn't have a joystick, so we, play, we played it with a trackball. That was amazing. That's pretty wonderful. Normal with air quotes. Um, I like that. Yeah, so, like, I, I grew up in tech, so it wasn't a huge stretch for me to just switched to doing that for money when I graduated college. Can you tell us the difference between music nerds and computer nerds? Can you wax on that? I mean, if I watch the music computer, sure. No, I mean, what? I don't know. Like what's different no, what culturally you, about them? Culturally? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, on some level, Nerds are nerds, geeks are geeks. Will Wheaton had this great article. Mm-hmm. He wrote this great thing a while ago where he was saying that it, it was sort of, you know, happy feeling. We're all, we're all one kind of an article, but it's, if you're passionate about a thing, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter what the thing is. What matters is the level of passion that you put into it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've, I feel like music nerds, computer nerds, like we have a kinship in that we're super passionate about these particular things. Um, 
there's all kinds of fun stereotypes about musicians, depending on what instrument you play. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad's my dad's favorite joke ever is if he meets um, he meets a, a trumpet player or a brass player, he says, "You know how a trumpet player introduces himself? Hi, I'm better than you." <laughs> I think we all know that one. <laughs> right, right, and that, that's a classic. That's a classic. Uh, viola players are, you know, the cut-ups in the orchestra. They're, they're hilarious. Right, right, um, right. The violinists are the, the super uptight, competitive ones. Yeah. So what did you play? Violin. Yeah, right, okay. I, I, I played saxophone when I was in, in the school band in grade 7 and 8. Oh, All nice. Yes, That's yeah. fun. I had to play in an orchestra with a saxophone once. That wasn't super fun. Oh. Saxophones don't belong in orchestras. I'm sorry. No, not really. They're great in bands. They're great in jazz bands. They're amazing in jazz bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on, don't be. They're, they were a key part orchestra. of the new romantic music movement as well, saxophones. So. I still believe. <laughs> no, from the from the Lost Boys. Right. Everybody. Knows oh, I was like, you said new romantic, so I'm like, okay, so you know, like Spando Ballet, nineteenth century. Right. Oh yeah. Oh no, not that kind. <laughs> The old new romantics. Yeah. The yep. original new romantics. Yes. New. Um, All right. What's the yeah. next thing on the docket? Oh, yes. The battle between shipping it and making it great. So Paul did kind of mention this a bit. And we were talking about this in the in the uh, pregame show about Paul, hopefully jokingly, suggesting that he would hack together something uh, on, a week- on the weekend and then say, I want to deploy it late on Sunday. and uh, But instead, he would uh, uh, acquiesce to allowing Gemma to uh, check out the code to see if it's... Um, to, to, to see if it's ready to go. So this is the battle between shipping and making a great... And I, I think this is also... This is also one of the problems I have with startup culture, where startup culture is totally f- fixated on winning the shipping side of the argument. And almost never on the making it great because they always say, well, we'll go back and fix it later. And probably, I don't know, 999 times out of a thousand there, there is no later. And someone discovers their idea will never make any money. And they've blown through a bunch of other people's pension money. And, uh, and the startup goes belly up. Uh, so I want to have a bit of a discussion about this. Why is pension money in an early stage startup? Venture capital. That's the money. That's pension and, funds. And the pensioners made the poor decisions on like maybe the three percent of their 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 overall fund that was going into high risk activities. There you go. Are you trying to ruin my story, Paul? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think Paul's breaking up. You may have to drop him from the call. <laughs> yep. yep. I think I'm hosting. He's getting. Uh, he's getting. <laughs> all, he's getting all staticky. I can't. I can't hear you. <laughs> I think you muted yourself. So. Oh, I muted myself. I mean, you talked about a bunch of things there. I think I'll let Gemma confirm my my overall programming tendency. Oh, yeah, he wasn't joking. Yeah, you said, Chris, you said hopefully joking. No. No, that's that's pretty much, that's the way it goes. (laughs) Which actually is is kind of, it's good, it's good and bad. It's good and bad, okay? Paul's emphasis on shipping means we definitely get stuff out the door faster than we would if it was just me. Absolutely. It also means that I often start with a really clear idea of exactly what Paul's trying to do Mm -hmm. with this particular feature. 
that he wants to ship. So I can, I can just take what he's done and, you know, move it around and, and, or, you know, rewrite it entirely, whatever, and then ship something with tests and with, you know, some level of design and whatever. And we get the same level of functionality as what he was going for originally. So in that way, it can be kind of helpful. It's like, it's like Paul does the prototype and then hands it to me. But if Gemma wasn't looking, I'd be fine with shipping it. <laughs> yes, but Gemma's looking. So sometimes you, know. you go on vacation. It's great. I still uh, look when I'm on vacation. <laughs> I, log, I log into prod like seriously one or two times a day when I'm on vacation just to see, just to make sure that everything's in the repo. And it's not just like uncommitted changes that happened at some point. You know, it's good. I think it's really good for startups, especially to trend towards to shipping something quickly, because if you're, because you, I mean, there's a lot of things you don't know. You don't know. You probably didn't spend six months on customer research. Maybe nobody wants that feature. And so you can hack up something quickly and say you get back to it. And then no one ever uses it. So you can just delete it after spending two days of effort rather than two weeks. No, uh, I, was you, going, I, I was going to say, actually, Paul, that I, I think it would be an interesting discussion about there are definitely if you, times in the life cycle of, of uh, a business or, or whatever startup where, yes, where definitely you need to ship and get this thing working and try to prove to people that, yes, the idea has merit because it's, it's the idea of momentum and you build on this thing works and then this thing works and this other thing works. And then you're able to prove th- that this thing you're trying to do actually has some viability. And then you're able to kind of apply the brakes a little bit, then go back and say, look at the things like what technical debt do we actually introduce? Um, the feature we know kind of works half-assedly, but now that it's a key part of our infrastructure, maybe we should actually try to tackle this again in a way armed with the knowledge of when we built the prototype initially, the prototype became the production version, but now we need to go back and fix it because the realities uh, of our situation have changed. I mean, believe me, I'm, I, I'm a big believer in shipping. I don't sit there forever I'm twiddling my thumbs when I'm writing code as well. I want to get it done, get it out the door. I just... I just prefer to have uh, tests with things rather than just write it uh, write it late and then ship it when nobody's looking. That's just just the way my brain got wired after getting burned too early, and that's how I learned all the testing stuff. My brain always says, "No, no, no! You have to prove this thing works before we want to put it up into production." So, I mean, I am not opposed to shipping. I'm not opposed to getting your prototype out there and validating that your idea works. Because I agree, Paul. It's way better to spend two days on something um, rather than two weeks. Because there's, I, I talk about this with testing stuff too. Often, all these bugs <clears throat> that get introduced when you've uh, chosen to not go with the path of testing, uh, there's real lost opportunity costs on top of everything else. There's, you, you could be building something new instead. You're back fixing bugs that you probably could have found if you had a bit more, uh, if you had a bit more rigorous um, procedure around testing your things before they go up into production. That's probably true. I, um, I, I think. One of the things that I think can run in that runs into that though is that if you don't have a good infrastructure already in place for establishing that stuff, I think that can be hard. And maybe it's just a matter of having expertise and how to go about testing different scenarios and stuff like that. And I, you know, it is the case that. Well, uh, Gemma, you talked about this in the talk that you gave at Ski PHP that the upfront cost that they found in the in the studies that were done in uh, doing uh, test-driven development 
included a, I quote me if I'm wrong, but around 20%, um, or tell me if I'm wrong, 20% more time spent up front doing that yeah, kind if, of stuff. If, if Jim is talking, if, if Jim referred to the same study that I'm thinking of that I've yeah, referred to. Yeah, it was the Microsoft TD. The micro, yeah, the IBM. Microsoft IBM TD one. Yeah, it's like 20 it's like to 15 to 35. Yeah, 50 or 20 to 40 is a number I saw another time too. But I've actually, I did find that actual paper the other day because I actually wanted to cite it. But yeah, and it's like 15, they're saying like 15 to 35% more time up front. Right. And the end, the end result was 40 to 90%. Um, fewer bugs making it into production. So I said, if you like to manipulate stats right. to your favor, you just tell people, well, if you give us an extra day a week to make sure we have tests, we'll have ninety percent fewer bugs. Yeah, which which is which is pretty valid. I, I wonder if there's any difference in terms of the uh, well, I, I you know, I, again, I'm just throwing in some additional variables that you might have in that. Is that I can't recall the different things that got covered in that study. But one of the things that I don't think it was was a web startup. You know what I mean? Nope, definitely and, not. And uh, no. and, it, and it was code that was like we're writing code that will exist for the next like ten years. Yeah. Like if I recall, it was yes. this right. Yeah, and the project the projects they were doing it was a it was a kernel driver or some sort of an operating system driver. It was Visual Studio, mm-hmm. MSDN, and I can't remember the last one. Chris, do you remember the last one? No, I don't. I don't because to be honest, I don't think it's actually matters what the projects were. Cause this was more just like a comparison of like two teams given the same problem to solve. Mm-hmm. One was told do it using test driven. One was told you don't have to use it. And so they're just kind of more interested in looking at what happens um, in terms of like uh, additional development time and reported bugs. I mean, sure. It's not a web one. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I see where you're kind of going, Ed, but I, my personal opinion is I don't think it, I don't think there's anything so special about the web that, that these ideas don't hold. I mean, I just look at think I said, I think the environment that this code is supposed to run in, I don't think it was really relevant. It was more just a discussion of like, what happens when we force people to use TDD? Because the tool, I mean, at this point in time, uh, and it's not just for PHP, but for other languages, Testing tools are pretty mature. You have mm-hmm. lots of options. So it's not like testing in one language is way more difficult than in another. All the tools are there. The techniques are roughly the same with a few kind of weird idiosyncratic things. I mean, the Ruby folks love to use their monkey patching as part of their testing to avoid having to do test doubles. Um, but the you know stuff is still kind of there. It's like, yes, all the tools are kind of mature. There's plenty of information on how to go about uh, integrating um, test-driven development into your workflow if that's something um, you want to do. So, mm-hmm. um, But that study is awesome. I cite it all the time because it's a good thing to show people that, yes, there is actual proof. People have done studies to try to quantify um, the benefits so that you can evaluate, not, not so much just so you could say, look, you should always do TDD, but more like you can show people, here's the trade-offs. You're, as, as Gemma said in her talk, you know, and I've said this too, a lot about it, the testing stuff is you're moving, you're moving the time and cost around mm-hmm. uh, to fix bugs with TDD. You're trying to make, you're trying to move all that time for the debugging to the uh, front, you know, to the first parts of when you're developing something and hopefully the cost of fixing those bugs will be cheapest when it's the developer working on it instead of when everyone panics because you've pushed something into production and nothing works. I mean, I know all of us have worked at places where 
you know, where the shit hit the fan when there was a production bug and there's like a hundred people running around trying to fix this thing when I did, when it could have taken two developers, two hours of sitting down and reasoning through um, if they had actually decided to test things and, and have checklists and be more rigorous about stuff. So I, I, I mean, I've gotten way less dogmatic about the testing stuff over time and I'm trying to just more generalize. Like you're, you're moving around when you're doing this debugging work and you're trying to move it to the part of the process where it's likely to be the cheapest to fix the problem. Because production bugs, they can range anywhere from like 10 times a developer's salary for that amount of time. They could be a, a catastrophic bug that destroys your company because, you know, you somebody pushes something up into production and it, you know, it drops and deletes your master database. I mean, I'm sure people have done stuff like that. Paul's laughing because he's probably done something like that. Um, uh, but yeah, so... Wonder Proxy had some in, had interesting relationship with the wear clause before, <laughs> like in the, in the early days. <laughs> but, yeah, um, early days. Yeah, er, early days. Early, early days, early days. <laughs> <laughs> Not now. Winter Proxy actually launched without a way to charge people for their second month of service. <laughs> but I've read that. Actually. See, that is a hardcore shipping right there. Yeah, that is mean, hardcore. We also that could, make, that could make sense though in certain circumstances. You're like, I don't know if we're going to be around next month, so let's just launch right. this thing. And if we have to, we'll figure out how to. We have enough time. We'll figure out how to how to build I mean, people. I, but, I didn't figure it out to month four, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> we also something that I think testing might have caught early was. There's a bug when, if your account was, so like somebody signed up for an account and then like it was a fraudulent PayPal transaction. So like PayPal just took the money back like two days later. But there was an issue where they signed up for like a team account or a corporate account so they could make sub-users on their account and they were deactivated. But the sub-users they could create in their account, (laughs) which they still had privilege to do, started off as active. It's like, nice. man, this this guy's a scammer. How did, did we forget to turn this one off? And we go deactivate it. Then, like, go look like the next day, and there's like another active account in here. Like, what's going on? And I mean, at the end of it, I kind of wanted to give the guy like a thumbs up. I mean, like, yep, that was a bug. You figured that one out. <laughs> man. So I think we derailed a little bit. So keep keep going with your thought there, Ed. You were saying because before we kind of derailed you it, totally derailed me. Um, I you know I, I don't I don't know enough because it's not like I've bounced around from place to place and could say, oh well, we did this and it was like that, and we did this and it was like that, and so that would be, you know, that would change how you know how I view that stuff. Um, I guess I I do find that. Um, I think that it's it, you, you kind of find it easier to cut corners, especially in areas where uh, testing it would be a, a more difficult thing to do. Like if I'm writing a library with a bunch of self-contained stuff, that's an easier kind of thing to test. If it starts involving, um, say, external systems that you have to mock or something like that or have test doubles for it or things like that, whatever the words are that you want me to use for that kind of stuff. Um, that could be a little bit harder. And then that goes all the way down to like test UI testing, right? Um, if I click this button, does this happen? And do I automate that? And, um, and I think that can be really complex to do. Is it impossible? No, but it gets, it does get really hard when you're sort of like, we really need to launch this feature and maybe I could just click the buttons a couple times and make sure that it works as far as I can tell. Uh, and then maybe save myself like, uh, a, a, 
three days of figuring out Selenium WebDriver. You know what I mean? Um, and it's like, I think that if you, I, I wonder if part of it is that you, if you are already a, ver- a person who's very experienced with doing testing in lots of different scenarios, you can go in and do that. But I, I don't want to underestimate how, how challenging it can be for people who maybe don't have as much expertise in that. I would say I'm one of those. I can write tests and for some kinds of things, but then I run into stuff where I'm like, boy, I don't even know exactly what I should be doing here. And maybe it turns out that I've written my code in such a way that it's going to be a big pain in the ass to test it. And, and I was like, oh, shit, I didn't even know that. And then, you know, there's a, there's there's definitely some some tough stuff there. Um, and I think it will always be a challenge uh, for getting folks who have come into languages with more shallow learning curves, like, say, PHP does have. And it's easy to do something productive with PHP really quickly. And but having them go in and have a really rich understanding of of how to of testing and the need for testing, the argument for testing. And um, uh, that's uh, that's that could be a lot of work. I, you know, Chris, I don't think you should underestimate how much knowledge you have of this stuff. That's why people oh, use no, expert. I, no. You know what I mean? Oh, because you have no, a huge I, amount I, that no, I, from I expertise, totally and, yeah. and and that no, and I, it doesn't mean that it should. Like when we're doing stuff at Graph Story, like we're building, like you know, not not things we do for clients, but we're building some of our internal stuff. A lot of times, it's kind of like fuck, we should really write some tests for this stuff. Like, we really ought to do that. But you know what? We really need to ship this thing, too, because otherwise it's, like, kind of broken right now or this doesn't really work and we got to ship this stuff out. And, oh, you know, and so there's there's tension there. And that can be that can be tough when it's kind of like, no, nah, man, we really got to get this done. Or, like... You know, there's a lot. There's a lot hanging up there when it gets when the, the all everything's kind of tighter, and you're like uh, just trying to ship as fast as you can so that you can make some people happy, so that maybe they'll give you the money so you can keep operating for the next six months and keep growing. You know what I mean? So I, the, I totally you know, get. I tough. totally get that. Uh, but one of the so I think there's this. I think there's a misconception that you're talking about, Ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I understand as someone that sits down and has to figure out how to teach people about testing, uh, there's a ridiculous amount of stuff that you need to know. <laughs> so some of the, so some of the fun stuff I've been trying to do is break that knowledge down and start looking at those things. But uh, even stuff as simple as you remember when we had Brian moon on yeah, mm-hmm. back near the beginning. So Brian had an epiphany where he realized that he actually was doing a bunch of testing. He was just doing it differently right. and that he had lots of, uh, he was paying attention to log files and they had other things that were monitoring stuff. So they kind of knew this is what the system was supposed to look like. And then when it did, when the log files and monitoring systems were telling them a different story, they clearly had a problem. Mm-hmm. So for them, that was their testing system. They had a baseline of expected behavior, and when things deviated, they knew. So I often tell some people getting involved in testing, I mean, you're right, Ed, there's always this pressure, right? Got to ship this thing, got to get this done, client wants this feature, client's not going to pay us till we get this feature. So from a business perspective, it's got to get done. But there's ways that you can test stuff it doesn't always have to be automated code. It could be something as simple as you say, okay, here are the things that are critical for the application. If it means that we have to manually test them before we give the thumbs up, if it's like these are five manual tests that we run, then that's great. Just make sure you do those things 
Get into the habit of doing the same things every time you're going to push. Check these five things. If you have a website, check the logins work. If you're doing stuff with credit card payments, make sure people's credit cards are charged correctly. Whatever, find out the things for your application that are critical. Those things always have to work. And if it means that somebody manually tests all those things, Mm -hmm. then they manually test it. And at some point, you'll be able to justify the the. the often ridiculous amount of work you will need to automate those things. Not every test needs to be automated, right? Really, that's I, I don't believe that you need everything to be 100% automated because mm-hmm. in many cases, there is simply no re- proper return on the time you've poured into writing some Selenium web driver test to click on a bunch of buttons and you put sleeps in and you're trying to see if the DOM has changed, uh, the class is now highlighted, like all that stuff. Right. I've done all those things and they're such a waste of time because the tools are terrible to use for these things. They're slow, they're brittle, and they just don't – when they can't – the idea should be if a per if a human can test it faster than the computer can, then the computer shouldn't be doing it. And unit tests are an example of where a computer should be doing it because a computer can run a well-designed unit test in seconds, iterate through thousands of tests, and verify that all your code is still behaving the way that it's supposed to. Spending all this time writing automated uh, UI tests, the tools just aren't there. Mm. Somebody's gonna one of these days. Someone's gonna come up with a with a method that's better. I've seen a few hints of people are trying different approaches. I've talked about the thing where the guy who uh, who does a lot of work with Closure Script figured out a way to test UIs without needing a browser within Closure Script because of its immutability and because of some unique properties of Facebook's React JavaScript framework library, whatever you want to call it. Um, but the bottom line is you should be testing stuff. If it means you're manually testing it, then manually test it. But mm-hmm. just the, the worst thing is telling yourself that because of speed, because you need to get things done, there's no time to test. Maybe there's no time to write automated tests, but you're really fooling yourself. And I don't mean to pick on, on Paul, but you're really fooling yourself if you think you can just whip something together and push it up into production with 100% confidence without without having at least what? some other external per- party having checked things. Okay, so, I mean, how big is your software? Do you have 100 million people coming to it today? Then, yeah, you probably want 100% confidence. Do you have 400 active customers, most of whom do, but don't bother coming to your website that often? Then you don't need 100% confidence. 75 is probably good enough. Well, well I, we, I, can, I, we, we, can have a, we can have a philosophical difference there, Paul. It's okay. Your business, your rules. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just... Putting my point out there. I mean, the, the bigger I, it is, the more things are involved, the, the higher confidence you want. But sometimes that number is a lot lower than 100. I, I should point out, in Paul's defense, he hired me. That's true. <laughs> knowing that I care about this stuff and mm-hmm. knowing that, like, there was going to be, we were going to do some compromising there. And he hired me on purpose for that reason specifically. So that, that, that was all. That was my defense of Paul. That was it. Maybe we just don't realize how fast Paul is. Maybe he can just test anything faster than a computer. Maybe. Maybe he's the John Henry of our age. <laughs> I love that. That's an awesome song. I like listening to that song whenever I get a chance. The Johnny Cash version is awesome. Uh, you know, uh, Steel is kind of based on John Henry. Yeah, I figured that when I remember when I saw when the initial comics came out. Did you watch that movie? No, I have not watched that movie. That's a good movie. That's a great segue. It's a great movie. 
Jim Washer. No, I get I get Paul's point. Do you do you need 100% confidence all the time? No. Of course not. You have a feature that almost nobody's going to use well, then maybe maybe you, you just maybe you just push it. But I'm just uh, I think I think my big point though Paul is there's a difference between uh understanding the required level of confidence and just always always treating every every release the same. Like people, you, you, you kind of get what I'm, my point, like you can look at it and say, okay, I think this thing is very important. So I need lots of confidence, but this other thing, not so much. The problem is that when that not so much level of confidence becomes the standard one, right? When, when people treat every release, like, eh, it doesn't really matter whether it works or not. Cause for every application, no matter how few people are using them, there are changes that are critical and changes that aren't. So the problem is that when you treat all, every change as very casual, then one of these days, your very casual attitude about it will cause a humongous problem. And that's the type of kind of thinking I want people to start doing as well. Thinking about, yeah, okay, you can't write a bunch of tests. Your code coverage sucks. That's fine. Those things all take time. You know, retrofitting in tests to an existing uh, legacy code base that doesn't have them is a huge amount of work. Usually not work. Usually not worth the the required effort to get it up to 100% because it's just not Jim, going to happen. Jim but, has a really good talk on how to approach that, actually. I, I, think, I think Chris also has a couple of good talks on the topic. <laughs> uh, but just, you know, like, I don't want to argue with Paul. That's kind of not my point. I'm just, no, I'm just we saying do that, want you to argue with Paul. That's the point. Right, well, <laughs> well, the problem is I don't, like, I don't really want to like, argue with people that I like. I prefer to argue with, with strangers on Twitter because for me it's much more um, satisfying than arguing with people that I actually want to talk to when, when I see them. So, um, but, uh, Paul does, Paul makes a good, a good point. It's hundred percent confidence, not always needed, but the, the trick is learning for your particular application and not lying to yourself about the stuff that's important because people tell themselves ridiculous lies about, um, what they need to do as even as just part of their, of their development process about stuff that they, they stuff that they think is important. That isn't really important when you look at the needs of the, of the business of whatever thing this application is supporting. And I've always told people lying to yourself about the work that you do as a programmer is probably the worst thing that you can do because you're lulling yourself into a false sense of satisfaction. People want to work on shit. False. That's what do you mean? False sense of satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, immensely satisfying. Don't even talk to me. Uh, just if if people would stop worrying about wanting to save the world and instead understand the ridiculous amounts of money there are to be made to be solving simple problems like telling people how their websites look in uh, from other jurisdictions, I think the world would be a much better place. You look at what Stripe does. That's a like that's a legitimate thing. Helping to make online transactions as easy as possible. That's to me. That's way more better than. About 999,000 other startups I hear about that are just finding ways to um, cash out and buy themselves a nice car before someone figures out that their idea is worthless. Sort of an interesting observation I'd make about Stripe is I've heard, and I'm going to get a lot of flack at work about this, Mm -hmm. but I've heard people talking about, uh, people who do PR, talking about one of the things that they try to do is they try to like present the CEO of the company as a thought leader in the industry. You want, to, you want to get this person out there, you want the news people talking about them, you want to get them out there, you want to present them as a thought leader. And that never really made sense to me. And then I started hearing Patrick talk about what's going on in Stripe and what's going on on the internet and what's going on in the financial industry. And it actually made sense to me because I feel like he's actually sort of worthy of that title. 
Um, if, if you actually have the opportunity to hear him talk about what's going on, what Stripe's doing, or what even where he sees things going, I think he's really worth listening to. Um, and he's not at all involved in my compensation decisions, so I'm not trying to butter up the ball for that or anything. It's just he's listening to him talk about what's going on in, in like credit cards and, and the internet and moving money around is, I think, really interesting. Hey, I want to step back to something. What ball's getting buttered? No is balls. The, I'm sorry. Is it the front ball or the back ball, Paul? Yeah. Or does it depend on your perspective? That one, or, sure. Or which way you're holding Whichever it. Whichever one gets me out of this conversation the fastest. Is there, is I, don't, that, I don't want to talk about striping balls in the same Was that a phrase that your pastor that. used? <laughs> what, Ed, what are you doing? What? I, we were talking about churches in the front and back. No, no. <laughs> like, I'm just asking a question. Uh-huh. Inappropriate and shouldn't be discussed. But I liked uh, Justin Carmody's stories about the. I think he was. Uh, he did his uh, mission work in a, a Spanish-speaking country, and that uh, one of the people who was along with him, uh, who didn't grasp all the colloquialisms of the language, uh, got up in front of the. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the gathered uh, group of people that for some the reason gathered, I can't think of. Uh, the congregation. The congregation is exactly the word that I sing. Got a gun from the congregation. And you the, went to like a Jesuit school, didn't you? No, I did not go to a Jesuit school. I went to, you mean for high school, I went to a multi denominational Christian school um, uh, for high school. And, uh, but I was raised Catholic. And. Lots of guilt. She, she said. Oh, uh, and she uh, said that she was. She thought she was saying she was embarrassed, and it was oh. the bishop's fault. But she said that she was very pregnant, <laughs> and it was the bishop's. And it was fault. the bishop's fault. <laughs> nice. Ah, oh. uh, Justin that- also told me a, a good story about when he was uh, flying on a plane, and there was a. Uh, um, a Latino couple sitting next to them and they were talking dirty to each other in Spanish. Okay. And after about like 90 minutes, he said, uh, I don't know any other way to tell this to you, but uh, I, I'm understanding every single word that you're saying. Cause I speak Spanish <laughs> <laughs> and you can imagine how non-confrontational Justin uh, was about it. Um, but uh, I, I get a chuckle about that. Cause he was well, and you also, stuff. you also have to keep in mind how, Unbelievably white Justin is. <laughs> like, yes. Incredibly, yes. incredibly white. Yes, yeah, that's the true. last person that you would expect yeah, to I think pick up every word yeah. of. You, you would not think that he knows Spanish, but um, yeah. I was when I lived in Quebec. I was in an elevator at some point with one of my friends, and like there's a couple other random people in the elevator, and I was like trying to express my French, and I was really excited about something, and so I was trying to say that to one of my friends. And sort of, I used the wrong excited, and it was meant, it was like sexually excited. <laughs> <laughs> like in the elevator with my friend and like three strangers and maybe their kid or something. <laughs> oh my word. And that's when you made the decision to move back to Ontario? Yeah, yeah, Dude. not look back. I, uh, after I'm going to start doing that every time I want to say I'm excited. I'm going to say people I'm aroused. <laughs> You're aroused? Yeah. I'm very aroused by this. Yeah, this is the only language I know, but I just feel like I'm going <laughs> to intentionally screw it up. I, I kind of do that anyway, actually. So, uh, it's like when you know the rules, you know how to break a man. 
It's basically what Chris was saying about testing. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to know the rules, and then you know when to break them. Skitty scat. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to, to tell people, ah, you don't really have to test. It's okay. Uh, you know what? I would be very interested. Money shows up in my bank account every two weeks, whether you write tests or not. So I'm totally cool. With that. <laughs> I would be very interested in something that was like doing a, a, a testing in a, like a high pressure environment or startup environment or things like that. I think that is a thing where people, people see the, the, uh, where testing get the need for testing or the desire for testing gets eroded away. And I think it would be really useful for people to have some guidance on things to do and things that they can kind of set aside. Um, and that would be something that maybe you should do. Yeah, so well, I'll, I'm going to take 5% off the top of the book, yeah. book stuff from that. Some, something that can be very valuable is if you're going to start making riskier decisions is trying to reduce the cost of switching back. So if you're not going to write unit tests, you're just going to like throw crap up on the code. Having a process to roll back to your previous version, or doing blue green deployments, or mm. you know having a load balancer in front of things, you can move traffic away from the, the, the affected server if you do find a higher error rate. Blue like rather rather than investing in your testing, investing in an, in an infrastructure that allows your customers to find those bugs for you and then get them off <laughs> those bugs again. <laughs> Can help make that work for you. I'm going to start twitching in a second. I'll suggest all these things. Uh, feature flags are also very good for that as well. If mm-hmm. you get into the habit in your code, wrapping new experimental stuff in feature flags, and hopefully, again, you know, it makes good sense. You know, reduce your what's the correct like your surface exposure to the bugs by making sure not no, instead, I'm of start a, twitching, Chris. instead of a what's that? No, I'm going to start twitching. <laughs> no, just, just Paul start writing everything with feature flags. It's okay. Oh my gosh. Don't, don't do it, Paul. Don't do if it. One, if one, whatever. Oh my gosh. I worked, I worked for six years in the postal mailing industry. I was um, working in C. C89. Like, not C99, not C++, and CC that nobody uses anymore. Uh, and we were writing um, automation software for really huge companies, household names that needed to mail millions of pieces every month, millions of, of like bills and, and, and junk mail and all that kind of stuff. I helped them. You're welcome. Um, and we would, we would put, we would do feature flags. Like this wasn't, this was early in my software development career. I was a junior member of this team. I didn't have a lot of say in a lot of things. So the way that they would work on new stuff was to put, you know, compiler like preprocessor defines around features that they didn't want to release yet it was was a nightmare it was a nightmare they were just doing it wrong Uh, no i don't think they were doing it wrong if feature flags are good enough for facebook they're good enough for everybody (laughs) oh i guess you're right what are you gonna do Facebook had to write a whole Facebook new PHP interpreter because of Facebook. Know, right. We should ask Sarah. Was it because of the overhead of all the feature flags? You guys had to create HHVM. <laughs> <laughs> I think good thing she already sent me an HHVM T-shirt. Otherwise, I'm not going to get one now no, if I ask not, her that question. No, no, don't ask for an. The history of HHVM has been really interesting, and like the different sort of different steps that's gone through over time to get to where it is now, I think is really cool. Like the original monolithic <laughs> compile all of your PHP in one C server that also has a built-in web server. 
like like the, the like the original original one was was kind of an inter- interesting approach, and they that, moved a long way to long. Era. That sounds like an awesome idea. I want to go back to that. It's like you got everything in one thing. You just stick it up there on your server, right? Basically, and they, they made Bitcoin Docker before around, Docker. It was a huge executable. Like oh, yeah. all of their codes together turned into a large file. Mm-hmm. And so they installed BitTorrent on all of their servers to get it to move around faster. That's cool. Wasn't there oh, there was a there was a web framework? Falcon? Like Falcon with PH? Yes. Yeah, that uh That was like that was the same kind of compile all of your code down into one Oh executable and, and deploy that. No, I I, I I don't think that's the case. No, no, Falcon is with uh, where the it's an extension. So the framework the, is, is, the, is the implemented framework, as oh, an extension. The framework extension. is an extension. It's not that. Yeah, okay, the framework gotcha. is implemented as an extension. So, you know, gotcha. good luck debugging that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> to add that to the note. There you go. So doing, we're doing much of the wonder work in bullet PHP, one of those micro frameworks. What are, what are other people using these days? Um, Slim. We use Slim Men. at uh, at Craft Story for most stuff. Anything PHP, we're pretty much using Slim. Th- and we're using Slim 3 on newer stuff. Um, people... Uh, uh, usually they'll be like, let's talk about micro frameworks. And if you see a talk and it's about either Silex or Lumen, um, but there's lots of them. And mm-hmm. because it's not the, my favorite, I think that they're invalid. Right. <laughs> uh, for me, framework wise, uh, PHP stuff. Let's see. Before I went to Mozilla, the place I was working out had Zen Framework 2 and Zen Framework 1, so they wrote a, a little bridge to allow the, the two to coexist nicely. Um, the long, super long, 11-plus-year PHP app that runs a bunch of things for the Simulation Baseball League I've been in forever, that's a Cake 3 app now. And shout-out to Mark Story for writing the awesome 2-to-3 uh, upgrader that made things go super, super smooth. For me personally, actually, I think the next PHP project I want to fool around with um, to segue a little bit, I want to use Slim, but I'm trying. Someone uh, who I know who's been on the show, you remember Jim Gay, um, the guy who did the book yep. about the alternate Ruby and Rails. Oh yeah, um, setup that was interesting and the- incomprehensible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, he'd been talking. He'd been tweeting some stuff about this uh, this thing called Trailblazer, which is kind of like an alternate architecture for Rails that groups things a little bit differently, still uses all the Rails stuff, but just organizes it in a way that a lot of people say uh, makes more sense. So I want to take a look at um, the Trailblazer ideas and apply them to Slim, where it's not so much about model view controller and stuff. It's more a, a web focus where it's based on like forms and domains and something else. So things are organized slightly differently. So I want to see if I can take those, if it's possible to take those Trailblazer ideas and apply them um, to Slim um, because Slim gives you, you know, I, I like Slim and, and Josh, who we've had on the show, is a very cool guy, and um, and Rob Allen, a former colleague of mine at um, uh, at Rove, uh, has done a lot of work with documentation, and I believe he's part of the Slim project now too, helping get Slim three out of the door. So uh, yeah, for me, that's what I'm kind of uh, hoping to take a look at at some point in the summertime, just fool around with, uh, fool around with that trailblazer architecture, just to see if it's an idea that can be ported from the, the concepts of how to organize things in a way that makes uh, 
the idea is like kind of you're looking, trying to find an architecture that kind of makes more sense with the way people are trying to build web applications now. Instead of moving away from model view controller, which is a very well understood but often poorly implemented design in many frameworks, of trying out different architectures to see if there's just if it clicks better with individual developers and allows them to organize organize their applications better and, and get them get from the idea to something working a lot faster. I mean, I like the idea of of uh, micro frameworks these days because I feel confident that with the help of Composer, I can pull in a lot of packages and avoid writing a lot of my own stuff. Mm-hmm. So you're I, think pro- you're, you're I think use professionally, per, per, no, never. Uh, professionally, I've probably worked with at least twelve different frameworks. I think at this point in eighteen years, so a lot of different stuff. So, so what do you use at Streepay? Is it all uh, it's all Rails? Isn't it? It's all Rails. Rails. There's rails, a lot of rails. rails. There's there's different components. I'm on the internal tools team, so I'm not working so much on anything that anyone outside the company is working on. Uh, work. So, but yeah, a lot, lot of rail stuff. There's some other components. There's some best tool for the job bits running around too. Yeah. What? Best tool yeah. for the job? What kind of crazy yep. shit is that? Right. It's like when Gemma rewrote one of our PHP things into Go and it got like three orders of magnitude faster. <laughs> it did. It got pretty much faster. It's good. So it Apparently work. long-running daemons aren't really a PHP's cup that, of tea. That, that, that. People, I, every, every conference I go to, there's at least one talk talking about how you can run PHP forever and it can be your, it can be your daemon. You can. Yeah. But why? Like, there are other... That, that do it better, yes. Or, or some, or some right people fear change. Some people fear no. change, Gemma. They don't want to. They're like, you know what? They, they, they want to have their other. Believe me, other languages are doing this same thing. Other developers of those languages, they're like, I don't want to use a tool that's not written in my preferred language. Sure. Of so that's why you get ridiculous things like people people insisting that PHP is a uh, you know a perfectly cromulent solution for uh, daemons, or people rewriting tools in Ruby that exist where a perfectly working solution exists in some other language. It's like, why don't you pick the tool that's actually best suited for the task you're trying to accomplish and stop being so uptight that it's well, not, not I, in the I, language that you're familiar with. I think that's, I think that's part of it. Absolutely. I think another part of it is people, I think people like the challenge. I think, I think it's fun for people to be like, I need, I need this solution and this is the language that I know and it's not really suited for the solution, but you know what? I'm a pretty good programmer. I can, I bet I can make it work. You just, and I, I think people, I think that's a rush. I think people like doing that and that's fun. And that's that's totally valid. That explains the entire it, it job. It is. I mean, if you're if you're doing it as your project, if it's your baby, it's your you know, it, it's your heart and soul and blood and tears and whatever. You might as well have a good time while you're doing it. Reinventthewheel.com. Yeah. Absolutely. So, like PHP GTK. There's a there's a great. Yes. Uh, oh, don't don't say if you say that three times, uh, Elizabeth uh, Marie Smith will magically yeah. appear. Don't don't say it. And I think like so. When, when Where's It Up started, I wrote this daemon that did things with PHP, basically running shell scripts, and it wasn't good. But it, it did us for like the first two years. And then, you know, we scaled up. Somebody started doing several million jobs a day, and it wasn't fast enough anymore. And then we looked at something else. And for me, I like deploying PHP for Wonder Proxy because our entire company understands how PHP runs in production. We know how to deploy it. We know how things work there. You know, it's not. We don't need sixteen different, you know, versions of RBNV lying around in order to oh make everything God. work. Oh Shout God. out to Sean Coates. 
right? We, we understand how to deploy this stuff to production, and it works. And when something goes wrong, we know how to debug it. And if we're going to introduce another technology into our stack, there's a high, it needs to pass a high, bird, a high threshold there. Mm-hmm. In other, because otherwise, we've made our, like, when something goes wrong, we're going to have no idea how to debug it, and it's going to become really important quickly. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a key thing is that, uh, you know, I, I do that in my talk, How to Be a Great Developer. One of the things I talk about is that, that it, one of the things you have to take into that has to be a huge consideration is the um, expertise you have present in your team and uh, and the people working on it. Because if if you have a team that has experience in X technology, then there has to be a really strong reason not to do it in that technology. Like there has to be a, a, a strong enough upside to overcome like the learning curve and the, and the learning curve is often, it's, I find it's rarely the language. If you're, if you're a person who has learned at least two programming languages, worked in at least two, I think that you're going to be good at lots of them. You're going to at least be able to do something in lots of them. Um, but the tools, I think, are the real issue. And when you talk about like how to debug stuff, that's part of that tool set. And that's not really necessarily just a, how do I write the syntax and shit like that. It, it, I think it's really about that. It's about the tools. And, uh, and that's the stuff that I think gets real hard. And insert 10 minutes of me talking about how horrible Java <laughs> is in that respect. Huh. Actually, I don't I think wanna... Java is a terrible language in that way, but I just think the tools and the and the the expectations of the community that puts out those tools are horrible for people who have not worked in it before. Going back to not Java for a second, yes. I want to. I just want to point out after Paul has said that. He likes to deploy in PHP because everybody knows how to deploy it, and it's you know it's very simple and whatever. Mm-hmm. The the Go backend for the Where's It Up API is the only part of the Wonder Proxy stack that has a one click deploy button. <laughs> it's the only part. Ba-doom. Just throwing that out there. Ba-doom. Man, I should set it up to play that sound. I should like go back into this and just get a, that like second and make it play that sound when I deploy. That would be good. Because uh, that's come up like once in the past year. That's because it's so good. You don't have to deploy it once. It's on, honestly, it's been phenomenal. I I could not believe how much it increased performance uh, and reduced the latency for people getting requests or results. You've got yeah, that was the big thing for me. Like we massively stepped up the like concurrency and parallelism. So, and, then, and then the client that was doing all those jobs stopped using stopped it. Stopped using it. It was like, this is so disappointing. Oh, now man. we can finally support you well and you're done. It's like, ugh. yeah. Hey, by the way, Chris just found the thing that I posted where he said, I, I said, he looks like Lobot from Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> uh, but he does, doesn't he? It looks like, you know, that. Uh, remember Lobot? <laughs> Lando Calrissian's the right hand man. Right hand bot. He's on I, I'm lap. impressed you knew his name, Ed. Somebody, he didn't somebody know his reminded name. Someone me. corrected him. I couldn't remember what his name was. Oh, well, I'm less impressed then. I know. I should have looked I, it up. I'm impressed with people that managed to follow Ed on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I know you can't because you can't handle it. You're probably too. 
too fucking worried about deploying stuff fast. <laughs> I can't. I can't handle walls of tweets. Like when people tweet more than like three times in a row. Yeah. Well. Like like Ben Ramsey's about to have a sad time in my in my Twitter following here. I'm dropping <laughs> science on people, man. Six, you better be yep. listening to something. But I guess half my problem is I don't follow enough people. So like even if you tweet six times with Christopher like five hours, that may be the only thing I stream. Well, you should follow a bunch more people. It's look, it's not my fault it you know you prefer the USA Today version of Twitter. I bring Oh, <laughs> oh boy. Oh. Uh, words. Even I had to look up from my phone to grimace about that one. That was pretty <laughs> Weren't you Chris, weren't you the one bragging about how you closed your other apps because you're going to take this seriously? Yeah, but then I want. But then Ed's talking. Ed's complaining about Java again, so I opened up Twitter. <laughs> well, he meant computer apps, not not on his phone. He still uses checks his phone a lot. So it's a cool story. Uh, I have eighty eight oh eight followers right now. By the way, so that's important. and I have ninety three hundred. So you're falling Terrible. way behind. I'm way behind. Way Man, behind. I was I was happy I broke six hundred last week. You guys are just well. Um, I love but, each and every one of my followers. Maybe you should have a bunch of a series of year long meltdowns the way I have, and uh, <laughs> eventually build no, up I a following. I'll, I'll actually try to skip that. Yeah, it's just probably Thanks. for the best. I appreciate the advice. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I just I just look at Ed's meltdowns and see if we have future podcast material. That's all. Yeah. Well, I I mean I I feel like we got one. We didn't get to it. About our terrible client slash supervisor stories, uh, but well, um, I'm tired. Uh, we've been yeah, doing this well, for like yeah, almost an late. hour and a half, so get a little late. Mm. But um, Paul already yeah. hijacked this podcast enough. I don't want to give him more <sighs> more time to talk. This guy, stuff. can you tell us, for, as a developer who's worked a lot with PHP, uh, Gemma, uh, can you tell us like what it's like working with Go? Imagine we don't have a background in say C like you do. Just pretend to not be yourself and tell us what it's like. Yeah, see, this is this is hard, actually. I have a very hard time describing this stuff at a at to people at a ground zero level because I mean, imagine we're idiots. No, not idiot. Just like I know. Oh my gosh! Because I've been doing it so long. You know? yeah, imagine, imagine Ed's an idiot, um, and I know what I'm no, doing. Oh my goodness! Tell us about Go. Oh my gosh! I really like Go. I like Go a lot. Um, it doesn't. I like how it does error handling. A lot of people whine about the error handling. Mm-hmm. I find yeah. it um, because it doesn't use exceptions. There's no exceptions. Mm-hmm. Instead of exceptions, it has this this really very flexible sort of error type, um, and it you can return multiple values from functions in Go. Mm. So what you end up doing is returning like the value you actually want. And an error, and you check the error, and if there's an error there, you you know handle it, or you return it back, pass it, pass it back up to the caller, and then you keep going with whatever the value was. And it makes it very easy to read mm-hmm. as you're going down. There's no unexpected like, oh, and I'm leaving the flow right now because mm-hmm. this might have this function might have thrown an exception, and I didn't check, mm-hmm. and I'm not you know I'm not putting in a try catch to check for it. So maybe it'll throw an exception and maybe it won't. I have no idea. It was with go. It's very, very clear. Like this is what's going to happen in the code. Um, I also like how they have um, interfaces set up. And I, I had an interesting conversation about with uh, Davy Shafik. I think it was Davy Shafik about this. Mm-hmm. It's key PHP um, where he was, he was so annoyed that go with, with go interfaces. It's not, um, 
it's not a contract necessarily. It sort of is, but you don't have to declare that you're fulfilling the contract. All you have to do is implement the methods that are defined in the interface. And if you implement those methods, you fulfill the interface and you can use that, that, that type anywhere you would have used the interface, which makes it, I, I don't know, it, I find writing code that way very, very flexible. Because mm-hmm. if I decide that, oh, I want to use this, this cool library function over here, but it needs this random method, well, I'll just implement that method and then bam, now, now I'm good. You know, maybe I already had the other ones. Um, the other thing I love about it is the concurrency. Mm-hmm. The way it handles... Uh, <laughs> the, the way it handles um, doing multiple things at once, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, channels to, to share she information. She had to add that down for you. What? No, I didn't. <laughs> I just... Just add it. that down. Yeah. Look yeah. it. Could you add hey. that down for me? So... <sighs> I was trying to... Find a better way to say it, and I couldn't find one, so I basically repeated myself. It was very embarrassing. Thank you for pointing that out, Paul. Appreciate it. Um, the way the way they've uh, implemented it in Go is extremely easy to understand. As a as a coder coming from other languages um, that have implemented, see now you. Oh my gosh. Um, coming from other languages that have you know much much bigger things have threads and all you know to make sure you have all of the weights and starts and subclasses of threads and it's just, it, it i remember being a mess in every language that i've had to do it in mm-hmm. it's it's been not fun as a programmer it's always been like okay i have to have the documentation open in one tab because i need to make sure that i don't forget a step in in this you know sequence of things i have to do to get a thread going it's super annoying um with Go, it's not. It's it's easy and it's um, intuitive. I find it intuitive anyway. So I think that's a bi- that anyway. sounds like a big appeal. I mean, concurrency I, yes. is a big issue with 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 current with modern web development. I'd say. So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Gemma, what made you decide on Go? Is that you just wanted to try using it? Did you evaluate uh, other server side compiled? languages that are cool with concurrency see the cool with concurrency qualifier there <laughs> um disqualifies a lot of a lot of languages mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, it's hard it's harder to do i was trying to the, the languages that um the co-founders of one product wonder proxy are comfortable and familiar with are like php and shell scripting and java um and now ruby with because uh, Paul is stripeified, so Ruby. Um, Streepay. What? Yes, Streepay. They're yes. going to be a sponsor. Oh, excellent. Paul's, um, <laughs> Paul's going to work that out for us. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be great. The, the Stripe Dev Hell podcast will be mm-hmm. awesome. Oh, yeah. The, um, hey, if they give us the money, that's fine. They can have the name of it, too. They have the naming <laughs> rights. <laughs> Go, ha- Go is has a reputation for being uh, easy to learn and fairly easy to read. So if I was not going to choose one of the languages that we already had, um, I was not going to pick something like C or C plus plus or, you know, Mm -hmm. even Paul Um, Rust was, was much younger at that point when I was doing all this stuff. So that wasn't even, that was, it was like an alpha or beta or something. I wasn't putting that in production. Um, So, I mean, go, and with all of the awesome concurrency support in Go, it made it a really appealing choice for 
the where's it up API backend, which has to run all these concurrent jobs all the time. Mm. Makes sense. Um, so that was, it just seemed like a really, a really good fit for the problem that we had. You know, Paul, it sounds like you made a really good hiring decision. Right? I mean, you realize, like, oh, that was BS, and I really just wanted to play with Go, but it sounds good, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) (sighs) You're not a a hipster, so you're not going to be going with Node. I mean, I figured that one out. She snuck Node in somewhere when we weren't looking. Did I? Nope. What's the blog in? Oh yeah, the Wonder Proxy blog is running the ghost, the ghost engine. Like, right, you want to make things. I harder looked for away yourself. for a minute, and there was it, no. It, this is totally true. All right, I take back what I said. You need to fire her tomorrow. <laughs> no, but it's so pretty. Go look at it. It's so pretty. So you blog at wonderproxy.com. Hey, no, no, no. You, you chose no, no. Wonderproxy.com/blog. Sorry. Why does pretty you, matter? It's you can CSS get and HTML. The back end is irrelevant. It's pretty to work with. Yeah. It makes you feel happy. Yeah, because we've written all those blog posts. <laughs> Will's written one. No, he hasn't. He has. Will has a blog post up there. You don't even really? know. Yep. Too busy at your high and mighty job. See, whoa, we owe Will 50 bucks. Oh, <laughs> yep. Look at that. I just said, wait, what? Is that, is that the going rate for blog posts on here? You need yeah. freelancers? <laughs> <laughs> Because it's not like Ed's going to be missing a paycheck soon. So yeah, I'm, to, uh, I, I, can, <laughs> I can write a lot of blog posts for you. Um, <laughs> we're actually working on company. some content marketing right now. We're looking for instructions on how to uh, use proxy servers programmatically in different ways. Yeah, that sounds like uh, cool. So I wouldn't mind getting some help with some of that stuff. How about graph databases? Do you need some help with learning how to use those? Because we, we can help you with that. No. <laughs> I think we should use the graph database for the ping table. Yeah, because we've we've got no way of just handling that information at all, and we'll just keep trying to delete it. Yes, yes, <laughs> we have this. This you you were talking about this in your last one. Uh, the uh, the ping the wonder Pro- or wondernetwork.com slash pings or something. I think. Wouldn't you like to help us or have us help you? I, uh, I and by that help us. Uh, and by that, help Ed, because yeah. I have nothing to do with that uh, dumpster fire startup here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah wondernetwork.com slash pings. We'll give you yes. the same time between two cities in the world. Uh-huh. And we have like 200 servers. So we can tell you like Anchorage, Alaska to Amsterdam yeah. is apparently 164 milliseconds. This sounds like a, a graph in action. This is what I'm saying, right? Like, the, and, you know, we're, let's just say it's not in a graph right now. Yes. But I'm sure it would be could, much better if it was. Uh, we could say that it's in a in a system that mines, rhymes with "Hey Sequel." No, "Bicycle." Bicycle. Bicycle. So we can come in and do a proof of concept for you. Oh God! So so. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Do this in the after show. Look, I don't sell my goddamn stuff on the podcast. Don't sell your stuff. First off, you do sell your stuff on the podcast. <laughs> Secondly, just because your, your day job is a nonprofit doesn't mean. Apparently, we have roughly 249 million rows of data. Hmm. Boy, that's uh, that sounds like a graph size problem to me. <laughs> graph scale? Is it, is it, is it graph scale? scale? It's graph scale. Oh, I crack myself up. Graph scale. 
Yep. But seriously, folks, graph scale. <laughs> it's and, the new web scale. Yeah, it is. Uh, so is it, is it eventually consistent? Uh, <laughs> no, no, it is. It is always consistent. It is uh, acid compliant. There's no way that there's no way acid compliant is web scale. I know it's strange, isn't it? It's just not fast enough. How is that even possible? Nobody tell Oracle. <laughs> I hope Oracle buys us. Anyway, um, that uh, that seems like a good time. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should talk about our sponsors one more time. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, sure. Talk about Graph Story too. Okay. Well, Graph Story uh, is uh, your graph buddy. So when you think to yourself, maybe I should get a graph database for this, that's what we help you with. We can help you with hosting and managing graph databases for you. And we can also help you with professional services, building proof of concepts or full applications driven by graph databases. Graph Story. What's your story? Jesus Christ. Yeah. I normally mute myself during the ad read. I'm sorry. My audio is just fine, guys. And then we got Rove. Um, I said some things that maybe I shouldn't have about Rove. Uh, but their cinnamon bread is excellent. And you can get your own loaf at rove.com. Rove. What's your loaf? <laughs> can I get that in a sticker? <laughs> yeah, that's going up on sticker mule right about now. I'll tell Gary Hawk and he'll get right on it. <laughs> yeah. Rove. Rove, what's your loaf? <laughs> and finally, as always, we have we are very, very thankful to Paul and now Gemma uh, for stopping Paul's uh, self-destructive tendencies with the code base, uh, for uh, providing us uh, with the bandwidth so people so the 10 people that are in IRC can follow along and listen uh, and they can hear the stream. So thank you very much for we actually I know we we butcher all the ad reads, but uh, Paul, thank you very much for being such a super longtime supporter of, of the podcast. We really do appreciate it. Not a problem. We're happy to help out. Cool. So this has been another exciting episode of the Development Help Podcast, episode number seventy one. Uh, I want to thank Paul Reinheimer and Gemma. See, I always want to say Ansible because I know that's not actually her last name. So we'll just call her Gemma. Thank you, Gemma <laughs> and Paul, for coming on to the podcast. Hey, we don't want to leak information out. There's crazy people listening to the show. You'll get just just having your Twitter thing in our notes will be bad enough to boost your. It'll probably boost your Twitter followers past Ed by uh, by when the episode comes out. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, so you can find, so you'll be able to find this episode along with our scintillating notes about it uh, on our website at devhell.info. Every single episode is up there along with uh, Ed usually uh, writes a really good title and finds a very uh, appropriate and usually safe for work graphic to go along with it. Uh, you can also listen to us <laughs> via iTunes. If you do listen via iTunes, please, please, please rate it uh, so we can pretend to care. 
you can find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. I finally am able to tweet again because Ed told me what the password was. Uh, you can find Ed on Twitter as Funkatron with the U. You can find me as Grumpy Programmer without the U. Thanks, from, thanks, uh, 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 thanks so much for joining us, and we will talk to you soon uh, in February. Bye now. Good night, Turner.